Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and as you can hear from the airplane flying above, I'm not in the lion's den. Instead, I just got out here to Flower Mound, Texas, the Dallas-Fort Worth area, and I am staying with Arnie Adkinson, my guest today. Arnie! You are someone that I have wanted to get on this show since we first met on that virtual Holy Smoke right at the very beginning of COVID in 2020. Well, I appreciate that. I, I have no idea why you want to get me on, but whatever I can do, I'm you happy just, to be a part. You, you had this jovial personality. And when you talked about your experience as a college athlete and your position coach, and I was like, there's something even bigger about here. And when I talked to Kay, I said, hey, what about Arnie? Getting Arnie on. He was like, oh, bro, absolutely. Wow. Yeah, Arnie's the man. I'm honored. Welcome to Texas, and I'm honored to get to be a part. So, first question I always ask, what you smoking? I am smoking an amazing gift from my good friend Steve Ryder, who just uh, handed me an Espinosa comfortably numb cigar so we're going to pretend that it's friday from your high school days and uh floyd friday baby we'll have a little floyd friday here it's a great smoke it's my first time to smoke it it's good nice and then i have a tabernacle esteli nicaragua yep tabernacle yeah yeah gifted by you i like the flavor this is very good that's a great stick i mean i had there's a cigar club here. One of the places we'll go while you're in town. Yeah. That there's this young kid named Caleb, and Jeff Oliver and I were sitting there talking, and and I was looking for uh, Liga Provada number nine, which is kind of my you know special yeah. special smoke if I'm yeah. buying one in a cigar shop. And he goes, "You like that?" He goes, "You'll like this." Plus, it I think it resonates with what I heard you guys talking about because he could hear us talking about something yeah. about the scriptures and yeah. pointed that out. And I now I've bought two or three boxes of them since then, so definitely a good smoke. So you are a Texas kid. I am. Where'd you grow up? I was born in uh, Spearman, Texas, which is in the Texas Panhandle. It's actually probably closer to you in Colorado than it is to me here in Dallas right now. It's <laughs> right on the Texas-Oklahoma Panhandle border. Yeah. I spent most of my childhood as an oil field brat up in that part of Texas. My dad worked for Texaco for 36 years in natural gas production. He was a natural gas production guy, and man, I love bragging about my dad. He, yeah. He started right after I was born working in a refinery. So I grew up, most of my childhood, I usually joke around, I grew up in a suburb of Skellytown, Texas. So Skellytown was named after Skelly Oil Company. And Skellytown, when I was growing up, the city limit sign said 756. <laughs> so I lived three miles outside of town in a camp town next to the refinery that in its heyday in the 20s probably had you know, 50 or 60 homes. When I was growing up, there were maybe 15 homes left. Yeah. Still had a credit union there. The grocery store had moved into Skellytown. But dad started working shift work in that refinery in 66, right after I was born. And he never really changed careers, but Getty bought Skelly and then Texaco bought Getty. So yeah. when he retired in 97, he was, I think, the highest executive in the Texaco Corporation that did not have a college degree. Really? He got a promotion once because he knew how to type. He was the only guy working shift work that knew how to type, and they needed a guy in the front office, and he got that job. And 
he's good at what he does. I mean, he's good with people, good at what he did, and, and did that for a long time. So, yeah. Yeah. So Oilfield Brat, we sojourned a little bit. I lived a year and a half in Oklahoma and then finished high school in Hobbs, New Mexico, which is really West Texas. It's two miles from the Texas border, so it's, <laughs> it's oil country. It doesn't. If you think of the pretty parts of New Mexico, Hobbs is not that. It's desert, flat land, but finished high school there and then went to El Paso. Played football at UTEP, as you alluded to, with the awesome Andy Reid as one of our assistant coaches for part of the time that I was playing football there. Super yeah. Bowl winning coach with the Kansas City Chiefs. Yeah. Took the Eagles to a Super Bowl. We were, you know, and if you're an Eagles fan, I people would ask, nobody asks me this anymore. I'm 54 years old now, but there was a point in time where people would say, if I want to be a really good tight end, what do I need to do? And my answer was always, spend two years on the scout team blocking Seth Joyner every play. That'll, that'll make you good. Cause, you know, Seth was an all-pro with the Eagles, and he was an upperclassman at UTEP when I went there. Did he so, go to UTEP? I didn't yeah, realize that. Seth's a UTEP guy, and so at every, every play, my first two years in college, I was on the scout team pretending to be the opposing team's tight end and trying to block Seth Joyner at every play. It was, it was brutal. It was a good learning experience. <laughs> so what drew you to UTEP? Ha. I usually tell people two things about UTEP. I, you know, coming out of high school, I, I had scholarship offers from schools that were better football schools than UTEP. I did recruiting visits to Arizona and Arizona State really? and University of New Mexico, New Mexico State, Texas Tech. You know, it was a great football program. I visited Tech my senior year in high school. They had nine tight ends already on the roster. Yeah. And I thought, I'll never play here until I'm a junior or senior. UTEP, bastion of football tradition that it is, <laughs> it's not, by the way. If you don't know UTEP, until last week, it was the only school in Texas to have won a national championship in basketball. Baylor joined that club, but it's never been a good football program. It was always one of those, you know, Bum Phillips coached at UTEP in the 60s, but he was on his way somewhere else, right? I mean, it, nobody ever stays at UTEP for their career. No. But I visited there my senior in high school, and they only had a couple of tight ends on their upperclassmen roster, and I thought, I can come here and play early. But the other thing is, you know, I grew up in a, in a Christian family, starting one of church nine months before I was born, been in church all my life, including the rebellious years. But like a lot of kids at 15, I kind of started thumbing my nose at God a little bit and thumbing my nose at my parents a little bit. We talked about that commonality when we went out to dinner when, I, when we landed. Yeah. So, you know, drinking a lot, partying a lot. So that's the world I'm in as a 17-year-old kid trying to pick my college. And when I did my recruiting visit to UTEP, they took me across the border to Juarez to a strip club. And I thought... I think this is the place for me. I can, uh, you know, in those days, the violence in Mexico wasn't what it is now with the cartel wars. In my freshman year in college, I was in Mexico probably three or four nights a week. Really? Uh, going to different bars and hanging out with guys. And because you could just walk across the border and, you know, drop a little bit of American cash and pay for stuff that you couldn't get. You know, drinking age in Texas had just gone up to 21, so I couldn't buy stuff in Texas. But Mexico didn't really card you very closely. So, yeah, that, that was a big part of why I chose UTEP. And fortunately, God had other plans in mind later on How while so? I was there. 
It really started the summer after my freshman year in college. I went home to Hobbs, where my parents were still living, and got a job working as a roustabout in the oil field. Very conducive to spiritual growth, by the way. Playing a lot of high-stakes poker, drinking, and doing that kind of work. But it was good pay for an 18-year-old kid you know, right after his freshman year in, in college. And still going to church. I never stopped, even that freshman year. If I was hungover as all get-out on a Sunday morning, I still got up and went to church. And Really? Have, have, yeah. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And I don't know, I, you know... It's a God thing, I guess. I, I guess you could say part of it was I didn't want to disappoint my mom, but uh, I'm sure there's some of that in there too. But I, I enjoyed church. I actually enjoy, those of you who know me will be roll your eyes and go, uh-huh. I enjoy theological debate as much as anything. And so even in my you know straying and rebellious years, I still enjoyed being in a Sunday school class and debating some aspect of scripture with people about different kinds of things. I, I enjoy those kinds of conversations still to this day. But I was home at Hobbs working that summer and still going to church and a guy showed up at our church. He was gonna do a revival. I grew up in the Baptist tradition and so Baptists do revival, which if you come out of a spirit-filled tradition, it's still nothing like revival in a spirit-filled tradition, right? I mean, it, a revival is basically an excuse for a Baptist pastor to invite one of his buddies to come preach for a week. I mean, that really is, <laughs> really is the sum total of, of what a Baptist revival was, a little snarky tongue in cheek. Snark is my love language, by the way. I'm sure that won't be the first snarky <laughs> comment I make. But a guy came to preach this revival in my church in Hobbs. His name was Barry Wood. And he was doing the, you know, kind of the youth and college sermon on a Sunday night. And I didn't normally go to church on Sunday nights. Sunday mornings was enough. But a few buddies of mine and I said, you know what, let's go. Let's hang out. He had brought in some kids from an Athletes in Action basketball team. And a group of my friends went and played them in basketball that Sunday afternoon. And we're like, okay, well, let's go. We'll hear. And he preached a sermon. I still remember the name. It's called How to Commit Suicide Successfully. That was the title of his sermon. And he talked about how kids today were making choices that weren't killing themselves quickly, they were killing themselves slowly. And not just physically, but intellectually and emotionally and spiritually. Hmm. And every story he shared felt like it was a story from my life. He'd say, ah, you know, he was in Lubbock at the time and doing a lot of work with university kids from Texas Tech. And he would tell a story and say, I was working with this college kid and he did this. And I'm like, I did that last semester. And then this happened to him. Yeah, that's what happened to me too. And, God just really used it. And me and another buddy of mine, both, you know, when the invitation was given that night, both of us kind of looked at each other like, yeah, God's working. And so we went down and confessed some sin. And really the first time in my life, I kind of thought, this is about more than just going to heaven when I die. This is about kingdom living. I didn't have that language when I was yeah. 19, but that's the way yeah. it really became for me. And Went back to UTEP a few weeks later. First guy I meet in the parking lot, a guy named Don Black. Great guy. I uh, hope if you're in El Paso, you never met Don because after he graduated, he was an El Paso police officer for a number of years. So if you met him, you probably didn't have good experience. But Don was the first guy that I saw in the parking lot in the dorms when I got back to El Paso. I pull in in my little 79 Firebird and Don's there in the parking lot. What He's, color was that he car? Was, it was brown. 
It was a oh, brown that's Firebird. That's disappointing. It was disappointing. I have to. It was a it was a graduation <laughs> gift from my parents from high school, and we bought it actually from a cousin of mine. Yeah. So, but it was a good car in oh, terms of yeah. You know, the 252 miles from the dorm parking lot to my parents' driveway in Hobbs, New Mexico, 252 miles. My freshman year, I did it one time in two hours and 35 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And the only reason I know that is because I intentionally, it was going home for Thanksgiving. I had a date on the Wednesday night. I intentionally didn't leave the dorm until midnight to see how fast I could do it. And if you've ever driven the stretch of highway between El Paso and Carlsbad, New Mexico, it's 100 miles of nothing. I mean, it's just nothing. And for 60 miles, it's dead straight. I mean, it's just... So I was very fortunate to not, <laughs> not, get, not get pulled over during not, that time. Not, not have any officers along the road. There, were very, there was rarely... You know, it's a remote part of Texas. There was rarely an officer out in that part of Texas. So I pull in and, that, yeah. and, and Don's there and... He says, hey, we're going, a bunch of us are going to Fred's tonight, which is a bar in Mexico. And I kind of took a deep breath. And for dramatic effect, I'll take a puff on my cigar for my deep breath. (laughs) I said, I'm not going to go. And he said, what do you mean? And I I wasn't ready yet to articulate a faith Mm -hmm. thing so much as I said, well, I'm not going to drink anymore. And Don laughed. He thought that was the funniest thing ever. And he said, I give you two weeks. And then the first guy that I ever led to the Lord. So fast forward to December, whole nother story in and of itself. We, I made the travel squad that year and was mostly on special team stuff. But we got to go to Australia and play an American football game. They called it gridiron, American gridiron game in uh, Melbourne, Australia, and went on that trip. We're gone for eight or nine days, and we got to all take our finals before we left, a little early. So when we got back to El Paso, literally you're throwing stuff in the dorms from the trip, packing cars, going home for the Christmas break. And I'm in my dorm room about to leave, and Don walked in, and he said, I don't know if you can explain it to me, but can you tell me what's happened to you? Because you're different. And so I got to talk about Jesus and talk about the gospel and Don prayed right there. And still to this day, we're, you know, friends on Facebook and Don still talks about that day and his faith journey. And, um, Hmm. I mean, that was kind of the, the month's turnaround. The guy who really was my discipler as an older football player on the team, a guy named Larry Lenny, Larry was a senior. And so that was his, that Australia bowl game was his last game and, the next semester, he was he was about to get married, and he was the leader of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes group on campus. And about halfway through that semester, he announced at a FCA group huddle meeting that I was going to be the next leader. He didn't even tell me that. <laughs> um, he's like, I really, I really think Arnie needs to be the next huddle leader. So for the, you know the next several years, FCA was a big part of my life, and it was interesting. Probably the first year was hard. Because I felt like, okay, now I'm the Christian leader on campus. I've got to put the front on. and So I didn't have anybody I could confess sin with. I didn't have anybody I could talk about my struggles with. There were still some challenges as a part of all of it. I meant to ask you before we started how risque we can get that's on the podcast. All, you can always all on the table. You can always edit it out. You know, but if I'm talking to a group of guys, especially younger 
men, teenagers or college age men, I'll usually say my penis was the last part of me to be converted. Mm. And mm. when I was about 21, I wrote my own book of the Bible as a therapeutic exercise. And, you know, the book of Arnie, chapter one, verse one was, you know, trying to imitate Paul, you know, Arnie trying to be a follower of Jesus, living in El Paso to himself. Verse two was the love of women was the root of all evil. And it was just, that was, that was a constant struggle for me. And eventually though, you know, God brought some guys to the team that were solid believers and could become accountability partners with me and, and guys that I could talk openly about my struggles and, yeah. and hold me accountable. And, you know, so I'd, this is a, probably a gross over exaggeration of the whole situation, but El Paso it's a small town, really, 800,000 people. UTEP football has never been a big thing, but in, in 86, we got new coaches in, and new coaching staff came in and really brought a positive attitude, and we started winning football games. You know, my first two years, we were 2-9 and nine, my redshirt freshman year, and then that year we went to Australia, we improved to 1-11. and 11. <laughs> um, <laughs> I say improved because the one – we beat BYU. They were the defending national champions, and they came into El Paso undefeated, and we beat them. It's the only game we won all year. ESPN said it was the greatest upset in the second half of the 20th century. You know, a perennial top 10 worst team in college football beating the defending national champions. And, you know, I think after that we got drugged by Kent State. So it's not <laughs> that we were a good football team, but that, that week it all worked out well. But Bob Stahl came in as a coach, and brought in a new group of coaches and it was just a real positive environment on the team. And so we went four and eight, eight and four and 10 and two my senior year. And consequently we were big deals in the small market of El Paso. And for lack of a better exaggeration example, I was the Tim Tebow of El Paso. I was that guy, you know, Arnie, tell us about that third down catch. I mean, that was a pivotal point in the game, and I was the guy who had to answer that question by saying, well, it was because of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the skills and abilities he's given me. And I had to preach the whole gospel in every interview that I had. And even with that, God, you know, used all of those kinds of experiences to grow me and prepare me for the things that he'd call me to do. I wouldn't trade it for anything. I mean, El Paso is a great place. We lived there for almost 20 years. Really? So even even after college, got involved in ministry and did local church ministry and different things that were there. So yeah, El Paso is a, a big part of my journey. So what'd you study in school? You've gotten to know me just a little bit. What would you think my undergrad is in? Women. Ah, no, that's the informal degree. I was actually an accounting major. What? <laughs> I know, it's crazy. What? Most people hear me say that, they're like, accounting? Seriously, I came in as a business major and originally was thinking computer information systems or something. And my discipler, Larry Lenny, said something about, you you should do accounting because you can always find a job. I thought, okay, well, I definitely want to have a job when I graduate. So I switched over to accounting. And then, you know, at, at 19, 20, really sensing that call into ministry, I talked to my pastor. I'm like, you know, hey, should I switch my degree to sociology or theology or something along those lines. And he said, oh no, there's not enough pastors who understand accounting. You should just stay in that. Really? So I stayed in the business world as an undergrad and 
but really, you know, got involved in a lot of ministry stuff, you know, spoke at different churches. Virtually every Sunday I'd get invited to speak in a church and had different opportunities when I finished. But what I wanted to do, what seemed like really cool, was to go on staff with Fellowship of Christian Athletes. I'd been around some of those staff guys and they were really, you know, great guys to hang around, hang around at camps all summer, teach sports, teach Jesus. You know, that seemed like yeah. the perfect world yeah. for me. Yeah. So I called up the FCA state director of Texas at the time, a guy named Dennis Connor. And I said, Dennis, I'd, I really want to come on staff with FCA. What do I need to do to do that? And Dennis said, well, the first thing you have to do is you have to raise your own support. And I said, I don't want to come on staff with FCA that badly. Raising money, that did not sound like a good thing. There were churches who wanted me to come be their youth pastor, and they were going to pay me a salary. So I'm like, well, okay, I'll pray about that. But I, at the time, had no desire to be a fundraiser, even for my own work. Fundraising, like a lot of people, sounded like the necessary evil that you had to do to get to do real ministry. So I did the local church thing for a while and was a youth pastor in a couple of different churches and had gone to a church as a youth pastor. And uh, if you're in the Baptist world, uh, you know, one of the key Baptist things is the autonomy of every local church. So the church calls their own pastor. And I had been at this church for three years as the youth pastor and the, the senior pastor left. And the church voted to call me as the new senior pastor. And you what, said you were 26 I was 26, no seminary, you know, self-taught and yeah. everything. Loved to preach, loved to teach, but quickly found out that pastoring, not necessarily my calling or my love for that matter, they were a wonderful group of people. It was a what I usually refer to as an untransitioned church in a transitioned neighborhood of El Paso. You know, a group of people mostly transplanted Southerners who'd come to El Paso, military-related, you know, originally. None of them even lived in the community around the church building anymore. The neighborhood the building was in was probably 95% Hispanic, 90% Roman Catholic. And I, you know, as a 26-year-old kid, spent a lot of time trying to cast a vision for the church to make a few what I thought were cosmetic changes that would help us minister better in a place like El Paso. And the metaphor I used was we needed to stop tasting like grits. Nobody in El Paso eats grits. We need to start tasting like salsa. And, you know, wonderful group of people. They, to this day, there are some of them who are now in their 80s and 90s, but I'm still connected with. And they love that they were the first rung on the ladder of whatever God was going to do with Arnie. I really hoped they'd be the whole ladder in those days, though, and really, you know, wanted to make the pastoral thing work. Yeah. But after a couple of years of being the senior pastor, I think it was, you know, pretty clear in my wife and I's mind and in our prayer life that the church needed something besides me. And we spent the last year and a half that I was the senior pastor merging two churches together. There's a Hispanic congregation that was renting a warehouse a half a mile from our facility. We had this beautiful facility. So the pastor I worked with, the senior pastor that was there before me, when he came, the church in the 60s had been doing great. I mean, they there was a 61, 62, they were running over a thousand in the church, which was very big for El Paso standards. Yeah. When he got there, there were less than 50. Oh my gosh. In a sanctuary that seated 900. Wow. 
And Steve, they had $4 million in the bank that they were saving for a rainy day. Wow. And he was able to say to them, guys, your rainy day came in about 1972 and you guys missed it. <laughs> so he convinced them to take a, a pretty good chunk of that savings they had and they renovated the whole sanctuary. They shrunk it down to seating about 285, built to this massive stage area. And one of the best ministries that he had and that I continued as a pastor was we became the de facto wedding chapel when a Roman Catholic was married a non-Roman Catholic and the priest wouldn't do the wedding. Because with this beautiful sanctuary that was, you know, the huge stage area was great, center aisle for the bride to walk down. And so I would get asked all the time. I did a ton of weddings of people. And, and of course I would say, well, you know, I would love to do your wedding require six premarital counseling sessions and, you know, would get the chance to talk about the gospel and faith to people who may or may not have had any interaction with Jesus before. But, you know, it wasn't that thing that I think God had called me to permanently. And so we started talking to this other church and talking about what it would look like to merge the two congregations together to make you know, the church, a, a more bilingual, bicultural kind of a ministry. Led through that process, had the business meeting where there was the, I mean, had the joint celebration service where for the first time, both groups meeting together, celebrating what God had done. And the following Wednesday at the church's business meeting, I resigned. Didn't have another job yet, had no idea what I was going to do. Said had a one-year-old at home. Had a one-year-old at home. <laughs> Yeah, and honestly, my wife was fully on board with the idea, though. I mean, it was one of those great God-faith moments. And I remember praying. I've been journaling since I was probably 17 or 18 years old. Really? And we'll, typically the week between Christmas and New Year's, I randomly pull out old journals and I'll read through. And you can read my journals from that time of just how often I said, well, Lord, if you want to make this a really stretched time and make it hard for us, you know, make us learn how to live on not very much and like God needs our permission to do any of those kinds of things with us. So I, I resigned and God was, it did the exact opposite. I mean, I, within a week or two, I had more opportunities than I knew what to do with. Really? Certainly had opportunities to get back into pastoring a traditional church. There were other churches yeah. that reached out and that just really wasn't a thing. And I, I was this close to taking a corporate sales job with Ryder Trucks. The, the guy who discipled me, Larry Lenny, offered me this job. And before I said yes, though, literally just a day or two before I said yes, yeah. the FCA board in El Paso called me, Fellowship of Christian Athletes board. I'd stayed engaged. Did they hear about? connected, they heard that I was looking. And they said, hey, we hear you're looking, how about FCA? And my first question was, do I have to raise my own support? <laughs> and they said, yes, but we've got a little saved up. Come talk to us. Let's talk about this. And so I went and had lunch with the, a couple of the board members, and we talked a little bit about My wife and I began to pray about and that's that's the direction I went. I, I spent eight years on staff with FCA. But the most important thing that came out of that is that I fell in love with the work of fundraising. I mean, literally, I fell in love with it. Why? How so? Because in this country in particular, in an affluent Western culture like the United States, there are just certain things that are hard to get people to talk about. 
and what people do with their money, the decisions they make about their money is one of those things. Yeah. Unless you're a financial planner who's helping you grow your money, it's not the kind of thing that you normally are talking about. And I was very fortunate. I'd, I had a mentor early on who was in development work at Moody Bible College. And one of the things he said to me stood out, and that is, Arnie, you're discipling people. You're not begging for money. You're discipling people what the scriptures teach about generosity and stewardship. And that you know, resonated with me. Hmm. And so to, as much as I love FCA and love Buckner where I work now, and I, I don't know that I could raise money for an organization that I didn't just absolutely love, it is my ministry. It's my discipleship ministry to get to talk to people about generosity and stewardship and to say, what are the kingdom goals you have? And to approach it that way, I think is even freeing for the donor or the potential donor because, and this has happened to me a number of occasions over the course of the last 25 years in my career, to sit down with somebody and to really listen to what their kingdom goals are, what they want to do and make a difference in their giving. And to often quickly discern that whatever organization I'm working for at the time is not, I mean, it really is not their goal. And to be able to say to them, let me help you meet your goal. FCA or Buckner, doesn't sound like that would help you meet your goal, but I have a friend who works for this ministry. Let me introduce you to them because I think that's where you would make a great partner for yeah. them. Yeah. And that's mature. Huh. Really? I mean, so often I would feel like so many of these ministries and nonprofits would come at it from almost a, you know, it's the poverty mentality where someone with means that has the ability to give, no, we're the organization you need to give to. We're going to manage that relationship. Yeah, and I think that's a constant battle in the fundraising world that whether it's an individual fundraiser or a, an organization, and this is just as true in the Christian world as it is in the secular nonprofit world, we get pretty protective of the donors, particularly the big donors that give to our ministries. And if you don't think of it in that kingdom mindset, it's so easy to do that. But I, I can tell you, not a lot, but certainly a half dozen occasions over 20 years of doing this, where I've said that to a person. I've said, really? we're not the right fit for you. This doesn't meet your goals, but let me introduce you to them. And in four, five, six different occasions, the next time that person had cash that they didn't have a plan for, you know, they sold a business, they had a liquidation event, kid graduated from college, so they got the pay raise of whatever tuition they were paying. There have been a number of times where those people have come back to me and said, hey, I want to just give you this as a blessing for your organization because I know you have a kingdom mindset. That's cool. So it can be self-serving even. In, you just have yeah. to take the long view of it. But yeah. it, it's challenging. You know, if I don't do a good job raising money, I may, I may lose my job. I may get fired. But that's the mindset I've approached it from almost from the get-go, that it's about what the kingdom is going to accomplish, not what the ministry I'm a part of is going to accomplish, even though I want that to be successful too. So you start working at FCA. Your wife is on board with you leaving the church. We never talked about how you met your wife. Yeah. 
it's a that's a great thing given the earlier part of the story about the challenges I had in my dating life as a yeah. even as a Christian leader and yeah. you know trying to keep a lot of that hidden. So there came a point in time where I think I told you earlier I I wrote that book of the Bible for my own benefit yeah. where chapter one verse two was the, the love, love of women, women is the root of all evil. Yeah, I, I really tried to take a break from dating and step away from it and did for a while. So the church I was at as a youth pastor right before the church that I ended up pastoring, I was just finished college. So it was the summer of 89. They hired me as their youth summer guy, smaller Baptist church. And I was really just supposed to come in for the summer. So I came in, followed a beloved youth pastor who had left and I was kind of the interim transitional guy. But had a great summer, great relationship with some of these kids. And in August, the church said, you know what? We're hiring a new music and youth guy, but he's agreed. He wants you to stay on until December and finish out the semester. So even then, I had this real value, much more in terms of discipleship than just building a program. You know, I was never the kind of youth pastor that wanted to get you know, just a room full of kids, but no mature kids. Mm-hmm. And so I'd gotten to know the kids in this group well enough that there were five of them that I thought I'm gonna, I want to invest some discipleship time in. And so that fall semester, there were five kids, three that were freshmen in college, so they had just graduated high school, and two that were still in high school that were seniors. And my future wife was one of those. So my family will often say that I you know, married somebody in the youth group. She was one of the freshmen in college and we didn't start dating for a long time. So she was Wednesdays. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, I had breakfast at a village inn. You guys have village inn in Colorado and I miss village inn. We don't have them here in the Metroplex. We don't have very many left. A lot of them in Colorado have shut down. Have they? Yeah. Well, we would meet for breakfast every day at this village inn in El Paso. And And Wednesday is free pie day. Yeah, that's right. That is exactly (laughs) right. They knew my order. I had a, I mean, I'd come in and they would just say, do you want the normal? I mean, I, I spent a lot of time at this village inn and Sandra was Wednesday mornings and we just connected well and became really close friends. That summer, I had started dating someone, and we had met through ministry stuff. She was a singer and, you know, in a lot of ways, kind of the consummate pastor's wife persona, sang well and presented well and was already doing kind of music ministry stuff. And we'd gotten pretty serious pretty quickly. So somewhere around October, I'm dating this other girl, but Sandra had become such a good friend. I'm thinking of proposing to this other girl. I asked Sandra to come help me pick out an engagement ring. I'm the only person I've ever heard of who took the girl he ended up marrying to help him pick out an engagement ring for the girl he was dating at the time. Somewhere in that time frame, some people, the the pastor of the church being one, started saying, I think you and Sandra would make a couple. And we had this friendship that both of us were like, no, oh no, that we don't think of each other that way. That's not the kind of relationship we have. But more and more, be it the BSU director at UTEP, all these different people started, you know, really kind of saying this. And eventually the idea started taking root a little bit. So it all came to a head Thanksgiving. The girl I was dating, she's from Orlando, Florida. 
Her parents drove to Texas from Orlando to meet me and my family because they're feeling like there's this impending proposal coming. And the week after Thanksgiving, I broke up with her. Did not go well. Let me just say, I don't have a college football letter jacket anymore because it was burned in a bonfire. Oh my gosh. With all the letters we'd ever written to each other, all the pictures of us. Wow. She burned it wow. in, a, in a fire. She did not take our breakup well, let's just say. Wow. Oddly enough, she ended up marrying the guy that she broke up with to date me. So well, I feel like God worked it all out in the end, but a couple weeks later, Sandra and I started dating. I still remember, it's December the 11th, because we still celebrate the uh, that as kind of our dating anniversary. Nice. And we were sitting, studying for finals, and had been talking about this, and I said, so would it be okay if I kissed you? And she said, I guess. <laughs> That's exactly the way she said it. I guess. So we started dating then, and they had just moved to El Paso. She, my wife's originally from Buenos Aires, Argentina. Uh, her parents, my mother and father-in-law, are some of the godliest people you can imagine. They're pastors. My mother-in-law hates when I say this, but she'll never listen to a Holy Smokes podcast, so she'll never hear. My mother-in-law is like the Beth Moore of South America. Really? She's a writer and speaker. Really? Teacher on women's issues in Latin America. You know, they've retired and slowed down a little bit now, but, you know, there was a course of time where, you know, my mother-in-law was traveling all around Latin America to speak and teach and do different things. So married into a phenomenal family. And yeah. So yeah, that, we're fast in love. We have our 30th anniversary, May 25th. Congratulations. So it's been awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing like marrying your best friend. Yeah. And so many people yeah. have to figure out the friendship piece after they get married. And we went the other way, and I highly recommend it. It's yeah, hard totally. to do. Totally. But I highly re recommend marrying somebody that you enjoy spending time with and not somebody that you're just physically attracted to or in love, romantic love with. It has made a huge difference in our relationship. Yeah, that's how Elizabeth and I started our relationship, was just purely just hanging out, getting to know each other, and it just, it just clicked. Yeah. It just clicked. So you're at FCA. How long were you there? Where'd you go? I did FCA for eight years. What sorts of responsibilities did you have? There? I was the area director for far west Texas. So El Paso over to Midland, Odessa area, down in the Big Bend part of Texas. So, you know, a couple hundred schools that... What years? That I started in uh, 96, January 96, and was there until 2003. So after Friday Night Lights came out, after the, Friday, the, yeah, the great book that spawned a movie and then a TV show, kind of loosely based on it, yeah. And I, I actually think Friday Night Lights underestimates the impact of sports in Odessa, Texas. I mean, it's, it, it is football is God in, out in that part of Texas. Even so, one of the places I would often go to. This was a whole new experience for me. Sanderson, Texas, was the furthest high school away from El Paso that I helped start their FCA. It was a six-hour drive. Texas is a big place. Yeah. Six-hour drive down in the Big Bend part of Texas, and Sanderson played six-man football. And, you know, the scores in six-man football are you, like basketball scores, you know, yes. 72 to 69 or, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, you know, I would love going out there and going to a game, and then they'd do some kind of after-game fellowship. And, you know, the school, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade probably only had 150 students and they'd have 100 kids show up to a FCA deal. Like wow. it was, 
wow. half two thirds of the school come out wow. to something like that. Yeah, you do that in a big school, and you know you'd have a thousand kids show up. So it, it was pretty cool. I I loved FCA. So I started going to church. There was a guy that I'd met, both of us pastors in El Paso, a guy named Albert Reyes. And Albert had planted a church in El Paso that tasted like salsa. It was what I really envisioned. And so even the church was culturally very El Paso. It was all in English, or mostly in English, but which is, you know, it drove me crazy in the Baptist world. You want to plant a Hispanic church? Well, you just do everything you do in English, just translate it into Spanish. The culture is different. Latin, anybody who's ever been anywhere in Latin America, you would understand that the culture of a Latin American church should be very different from the culture of a Mississippi or Texas church. And Albert really had that and planted this church. And so we got involved there and he and I had just been good friends. And I did FCA for those eight years and hired a couple other staff. Like I said, loved the fundraising piece of it, enjoyed seeing that happen. In 1999, Albert went to be the president of a school in San Antonio that's called Baptist University of the Americas. Was president of this little Hispanic, mostly training bivocational pastors for the Hispanic world. And in 2003, I'd had this success raising money for FCA. And he called and said, hey, I'm coming to El Paso. Can we spend some time and you just coach me on fundraising? I, the school was mostly denominationally funded, but he, he had a vision. And to really implement that vision, he knew he was going to need to raise Support. more funds and, yeah. and get, get a donor base. And the alumni of the school, like I say, they're bivocational Hispanic pastors. The alumni base was not going to be this huge financial resource like a typical university. So we came and had breakfast at a village inn and mapped out what I really thought, you know, here's kind of the basics of an annual fund and how you approach raising money and it's all about impact. It's how you cast a vision for what the donor can accomplish through their giving. And we spent three hours kind of mapping out a strategy. And at the end he said, man, I, I didn't plan to do this, but would you want to come help me do this? And I said, no, I love FCA, Jesus and sports, other than my family, what else is there in life besides <laughs> Jesus and sports? FCA was perfect for me. When I got home later that day, my wife said, he offered you a job, didn't he? Like, I walk in the door. Really? She's like, he offered you a job. And I said, yeah, but I told him no. And she said, well, maybe we should pray about it. Good pastor's kid that my wife is. I love hearing that sound on the podcast. <laughs> so most of the time honestly it's me <laughs> because as people talk they just stop smoking mm -hmm. they forget about their cigar and rather than relight 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 they just leave it off to the side and just keep talking so it's good it's, i'm glad that you were taking little breaks i don't I, this is a good cigar i don't want to leave this to the side so so in 2003 we moved to san antonio they say that you know the five most stressful things on a marriage are death of a close family member, divorce, having a child, changing jobs, moving to a new city. You're changing jobs and moving to a new city. And had a child. My daughter, my youngest, was born on June 6th. On July 4th, we moved to San Antonio. Wow. When my daughter was two weeks old, we took her to San Antonio to look for a place to, li to look for houses. And I will jokingly say, 
if I kept that kind of thing up, one of the other two was going to happen. She's going to kill me or leave me. <laughs> kill me being the most likely option. But we moved to San Antonio, and I spent five years as vice president of this little school. Great experience. You know, I'm married to an Argentine. I've lived in El Paso more than any other place. Spent five years at this Hispanic school. One of the themes of my life is cross-cultural stuff. I'm fascinated with culture. I'm fascinated to learn culture. I've been fortunate to travel to Russia or China or you know England, and I love culture. I love learning about it. I love learning the differences in language and the differences in values and the differences in food and all the different aspects that go with that. And so the five years in San Antonio was just a phenomenal experience. But Albert left and came to Buckner in 2006. Uh, right at the end of the year, he told me that he was leaving and coming to Buckner. And he spent the next year and a half, every time the, there was a job opening at Buckner, he'd say, hey, what about this? What about this? Now you have to know, I'm, I'm a small town Texas kid. And I'm the rebel in my family. So, How so? Well, in every way. I mean, you pick a way, and I was the rebel in my family. How so many siblings? I've just got one. Okay. But he's bigger than me. So he's three years younger, but he's probably an inch and a half taller and maybe four inches wider at the shoulders. And my parents are both big people. I don't think my parents could have afforded to feed more than just my brother <laughs> and I growing up. Well, I was never a fan of the city of Dallas. It is everything I detest about Texas culture, right? Really? Big hair, big egos. And they've got this little podunk football team here that people go hog wild about. And I am I cheer for two teams every Sunday. I don't watch a lot of football anymore on TV, but when I did, I cheer for two teams. What teams? The Pittsburgh Steelers. And whoever was playing, and the, whoever was playing the Dallas, Dallas Cowboys. Cowboys. That's exactly right. I'm an ABC, I, anybody I, with the I, Cowboys. One of my favorite books I got in college was uh, Burt Sugar's compilation book that he put together by all these different athletes and sports reporters. The title was, I still have this book, I hate the Dallas Cowboys, and who voted them America's team anyway? <laughs> it's the best book. That's absolutely <laughs> best. That is awesome. I need to borrow that or find it. That sounds like a great book. You know, my brother and I, people always say, how'd you end up a Pittsburgh Steelers fan? Well, they were the ones beating the Cowboys in the Super Bowl in the 70s when I was a kid. So I'm like, <laughs> that seems like the team I need. They beat them twice in the 70s. So my brother and I, in the 70s, both joined the respective fan clubs pre-internet days obviously so you're handwriting a letter sending it off yeah my little fan club packet came back first and i had a mimeographed gold paper that was a mimeograph of all the steelers players signatures autographs on this yeah. page man that was pretty cool i, I like that's pretty cool my brother got his dallas cowboys fan club thing in the mail a, a few days later and it had a handwritten note from Tom Landry. Dear Darren, thanks for joining wow. Coach. Wow. So while I am a definitely an official Cowboys hater, Tom Landry was Tom the man. Tom Landry was the man. He and was. He really was. Tom and Alicia, Coach and Alicia, you don't find better people than that. And with FCA, during my time at FCA, I got to be around him a, a good bit. He was very involved in FCA here in Dallas. And you know, one of those little things as a college athlete. I had just finished playing football, and 88 was my last season. 
we'd gone to the Independence Bowl. It was the only bowl game UTEP went to between 68 and 2000. I told you they're not a football tradition school. And that was back when there were only like 18 bowl games, not 162 like they have now. And played, we lost. We did lose the game. We played Southern Miss. They had this sophomore kid playing quarterback. Somebody told me he'd gone on to do good things at Brett Favre, maybe? <laughs> Fav- Fav- Favre? Farver. Farver, yeah, yeah. Yeah, when Brett was retiring from the NFL for the last time, because <laughs> I think he retired twice. Yes. And then to the chagrin of every Packers fan, played for the Vikings. I know. Yeah. yeah. I still haven't gotten over that. I, I bet, because you're a Packers fan. Oh, yeah. Packers the, and Raiders. You know, my, two my teams. college roommate for three years was Chris Jackie. Really? Yeah. So, really? Yeah. So I lived with a kicker. I know that's a little, it's, it's a little interesting. And, but yeah, Chris still, you know, his job now, he's the director of alumni relations for the Packers or something like that. So he was still a heck is, of a kicker. Still, oh, he's a great kicker. Our freshman year, we were both freshmen at the same time. Yeah. I'd never seen somebody who could kick like that. Unbelievable. So we, um, see, I got to figure out where I was in the story. I'll have 14 stories going at the same time. So Buckner. Buckner. Is that where I am in the story? Yeah. So Albert kept bugging you, bugging me, and finally threw something out that was semi-interesting. In 2008, I moved up to Dallas, became at that point the chief relationships officer for Buckner, and you know my world is has become much more broad than the Baptist roots that I grew up in. I'm you know, very much a kingdom-minded guy, and, and the cross-cultural thing plays a big role in that. I, I'm fascinated with how the gospel comes in a culture, and years and years ago, I read Leslie Newbigin's book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, and one of the things he talks about is how there's no such thing as a culture-less gospel. You know, the, the message of the gospel, of God's redeeming rescue of the world and what Jesus did for us on the cross and resurrection, Anytime it enters into a culture, it takes on aspects of that culture. And that, you know, both adds richness and depth to the gospel, but also makes it a, a ripe thing for some kind of syncretism and aspects of it. And every culture has that. Every culture faces that battle. For me, Dallas represented all the bad parts of Texas culture. But Buckner had been birthed in the Baptist world, had Still, most of the work they were doing was in the Baptist foster care and adoption kind of space, working with a lot of Baptist churches. But they had this ministry called Shoes for Orphan Souls. And shoes had, you know, it's raising, getting shoes and other kinds of gifts for orphan kids and foster care kids here in Texas and around the world. And shoes had 7,000 churches involved that weren't Baptist. And Buckner had no idea what to do. Yeah. And so he finally, he literally created a job that, that didn't exist before yeah. for me to come help build a strategy for engaging everything from a you know, rural assembly of God church in Missouri to the Holy Trinity Greek Orthodox Church in North Dallas. And how do you create a strategy that engages all those churches in orphan and foster ministry? That's um, cool. And it was. It was very cool until the economy tanked. And this kind of experimental role that they had created to entice me to come just didn't make a lot of sense in a world, 2008, 2009, every ministry is having to figure out how to invest their dollars in, a, you know, in this huge economic crunch. 
And so they asked me if I would take another role and it wasn't something I was interested in. So I said no. And so for the second time in my life, I found myself without a job and not knowing what I was going to do. And spent a few years with World Vision, did three years with World Vision, spent three years with a missionary organization called Team, one of the historic based in the Wheaton, Carroll Stream area of Chicago. But then in 2016, Albert texted me. We'd stayed connected, stayed close. He texted me and he said, hey, can you go to lunch today? Well, I knew that meant, uh, okay, he's trying to recruit me back. And I said, no, can't do lunch today. He said, how about tomorrow? So we, we went to lunch the next day and, and he said, I really need you to come back to Buckner. Really? As the chief development officer. And honestly, I said, I, I don't know. You know, one of those cross-cultural things for me, the North American missions movement radically changed the world. But we live in an era now where, quite frankly, North Americans are really expensive to export to other countries. And the missions world's going through this shift of how does missions work get funded? You know, for the $150,000 a North American missionary may cost to live in China, you could mobilize 40 Chinese missionaries to be church planners with that same resource. And there's still very much a place for North Americans in the missions world. I'm not saying that. But I think Team was really trying to, along with some other agencies, were really trying to figure out what is the next thing for North American missions organizations. Yeah. And I was loving getting to be a part of those conversations. But he was persistent, Albert. And we began to pray about it. And so I came back to Buckner in 2016. And so talk about as chief development officer in there. Talk about Buckner. What do they do? What's the history? We talked a little bit about that at lunch before we started. Buckner has two broad lines of ministry, children and family services and retirement services. Uh, we're one of the only organizations that, you know, womb to tomb or cradle to grave, however you want to, to deal with it, that that's been a part of our history from the get-go. And it's a long history. A pastor named Robert Buckner moved to Texas from Tennessee and Kentucky in 1850 to be the pastor of First Baptist Church, Paris, Texas. They have a little mini Eiffel Tower in Paris, Texas, if you've ever been there. But as the Civil War broke out in the 1860s and Buckner saw this growing number of Civil War orphans and widows, and James 127 was his life first to to minister to orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself undefiled from the world. And he was an entrepreneur of the 19th century. And he began to mobilize Baptist churches in the state to say, we've, we've got to find a way to care for these orphans. So in 1879, he had gathered enough money and filed with the state of Texas and started the Buckner Orphans Home in Dallas County. In those days, it was way outside of, you know, the little town of Dallas. And it became the preeminent orphanage in the state of Texas. It was the first children's charity west of the Mississippi. It's still one of the oldest charities still existing in Dallas, in Texas. He also started high school for African-Americans. He started the first orphan's home for African-American, for black kids. Uh, he started the Humane Society of Texas. Mm. He helped write the first child protection laws in the state of Texas. Wow. He helped draft those and then got recruited to D.C., to create federal level child protection laws. And, and so the, the Buckner Orphans Home has been a huge part of the history of Dallas for 142 years. And we're still very much in that space. So we do foster care and adoption here in the state of Texas. 
we had about 1,100 kids in our foster system in 2020. And then in six countries outside the U.S., used to be in a lot more. We used to do a lot of inter-country adoptions, particularly from Russia. We were one of the first faith agencies to do Russian adoptions in the 90s. And But as inter-country adoption has waned for good reasons and bad reasons, in some cases, those countries have started owning their own orphan challenges, which mm-hmm. is a great thing. Yes, totally. So we've less and less, and so we've kind of exited the inter-country adoption space, and most of our adoptions now are, are foster to adopt here in the state of Texas. But we still do work in, in six countries outside the U.S., mostly Latin America, still in Kenya. That's kind of the one non-Latin American outlier for us. But more and more, we've gotten involved in the preventative space, in the family strengthening space. Mm, and we now have that's good. just dozens of what we call family hope centers. And they're for strengthening the families who are on the verge of losing their kids into the system. So basic needs like food and shelter and job training, all the way up to what we call family coaching, which is where we work. We'll have a social worker who will work very closely with 10 or 15 families at a time and do everything from parenting training to job education Mm. to activities for kids. That's wonderful. Tutoring work. And we have these centers all around Texas and in the six countries where we work, and and it's nearly 100% donor funded. The foster care space, we get a lot of. We're a government provider, so we get reimbursement subsidies for that. But this strengthening work is 100% donor funded, so it's 10 or 15 million dollars a year that we have to raise. And then we do retirement services, Father Buckner, as we call him, which sounds weird for a Baptist to say Father Buckner, but that's what everybody referred to him as. Yeah. Father Buckner, now that cigar went out again. So Father Buckner loved finding ways to engage widows in the care of orphans. And then in in the 1950s, we just decided to formally get involved in that space. So we also have six retirement communities around the state of Texas that are, you know, focused on caring for vulnerable seniors. And as Mm. our, you know, the leader of our retirement services work says all the time, if you're a senior, vulnerability is there, whether you are a person of wealth or a person of poverty. When you start dealing with the issues at end of life, you're just in a state of vulnerability. And it's been a phenomenal ministry to get to be a part of something that, like I say, hits everybody from birth all the way through. And before birth, we're very involved in the pro-life movement here in in Texas and other places. So it's it's a great place to be a part. Arnie Atkinson. Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast. Let's get to rapid fire questions. Hey everyone, before we get to the rapid fire segment, I wanted to talk about a way that you as a listener can support the show and the growth of Holy Smokes by becoming a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash Holy Smokes. Patreon is a support platform and for as little as $5 a month, You can get bonuses like ad-free versions of these podcast episodes, Holy Smoke swag like t-shirts, and more. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. We're looking to get 40 Patreon supporters at an average of $10 a month. And once we hit that, we'll be able to pay for all the costs for hosting, editing, writing, posting. I won't be paying for that out of my pocket or through the volunteering of my own personal time. And as we grow that number to 100 and 150, 200 patrons, we'll be able to do two shows a week, hire a part-time assistant, web developer, record on location and around the world and more. 
I want to visit groups and get those stories from so many of you listeners that I hear from. I want to go to Seattle and I want to go to Dallas and I want to go to Charleston, South Carolina, and I want to go to Kentucky and Chicago and Phoenix, Atlanta, DC, Charlotte, back to Southern California and more. We want to help grow your groups and plant new ones for those of you in areas without active groups. So can you help us out? Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holy smokes. There's a link in the show notes. That's patreon.com slash holy smokes. Or if you want to make a one-time tax-deductible gift, go to paypal.me slash holy smokes club. That's paypal.me slash holy smokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire. Fire here. So we're resuming this a couple days later. Yeah. Because we had to go. Good places to go and people to see and cigars to smoke. (laughs) (laughs) What did you think of that comfortably numb that you had? That was an amazing cigar. That we definitely should have had some Pink Floyd playing in the background, but that that was a great stick. Thank you for sharing it. Yeah. When did you first try cigars or pipe? I've never smoked a pipe. So that, you know, as a confirmed lazy person, a pipe just feels like a lot more work. And a cigar, <laughs> you just pull it out of the humidor and light it up and go. The first time I had cigars was you know we talked about kind of my rebellious years in high school and so i that was when i started playing a lot of cards something i still enjoy a little poker Mm -hmm. and uh i was notorious for always having to smoke a cigar while playing poker so i you know i have no idea what they were they were cheap cigars bought at a gas station somewhere so not swisher sweets but probably not much above that in terms of quality so had had cigars, you know, almost every weekend when I was a teenager in those <laughs> pre-repentance days. But really, you know, more recently, I, you know, I usually tell people until I got invited into Holy Smokes, I was a five cigar a year kind of guy, usually with friends, some kind of celebration. Holy Smokes has turned me into a, you know, some days a four cigar a day kind of a <laughs> deal. So I've definitely upped my game over the last four years. <laughs> Favorite cigar. Yeah, I told you, as we've talked about favorite stuff, favorites are hard for me. I am the guy who takes life as it comes. And so right now I'm enjoying this little Hoya de Monterrey that that Yale gave me when you guys were talking earlier. Great Cuban stick. But the cigar I smoke the most, and Megan Hardray, this is for you. The cigar I smoke the most is the CI Coffee knockoff every morning. Just about every morning I have that. It's my first cigar of the day. just enjoy it. I, I like the the big payback from Room 101. It's a great stick. It's one of my common sticks. That you can't get them here, but when I go to the DR, I definitely like the the Family Reserve from uh, La Aurora, the Fernando Leon Family Reserve. Uh, it's a great stick. Most expensive cigar you ever paid for, or you know you've been gifted and you know how much it was. Yeah. For sure, probably for me as a Bejique, Cohiba from Cuba is, I, I've smoked one and I have two sitting in my humidor. Thank you for your generosity of the second <laughs> one of those that's now going to age well for the appropriate celebratory time at some point in the future. 
best dollar for dollar cigar you've ever smoked? Ramon Bueso, the Genesis Project. I love that cigar. Buy boxes of them at a time. I probably get it for you know three dollars a stick or something. And it it's just a great consistent smoke. It's not. I mean, it's not a great cigar, but I haven't had a bad one yet either. I mean, it's just a consistent smoke. Really enjoy it. Where's your go-to place to get your smokes? Cigar bid. Have some fun there. I joined the the monthly club at uh, Cigar King recently, and so get five cigars a month that are, you know, they, they bill them as kind of the a little more hard to get cigars, so definitely some good ones there. And then several local shops here. There's a TX Smoke here in Flower Mound or Cigars International or the Underground to go get all my Providencia stocked up. So where we had some cigars yesterday. The Spent a good bit of time yesterday, and Jim was there and gifted us with a couple of nice smokes. And uh, I enjoyed the uh, Huckleberry cigar, the uh, Johnny Ringo. Johnny Ringo. The Providencia Johnny Ringo. Favorite liquid pairing with your smoke? It depends on the time of the year. I'm definitely a bourbon guy, so Eagle Rare is probably my favorite bourbon, even though you can't find it in Texas very often, as far as a just kind of a common bourbon but Elijah Craig small batch any bourbon named after a pastor is going to be a, a winner in my book as Elijah Craig was a Kentucky pastor that was credited probably mythologically but credited with inventing the charring the inside of an oak barrel to store whiskey to make bourbon in the summers and we're sitting here next to my pool it's chilly today so I don't think we're going to get in but mm. In the summers, I really enjoy Papa's Pilar rum Ooh. with a cigar. It's, it's a dark rum. It's kind of got a little bit of a sweetness to it. And just drink it straight over ice with a good stick. That's a good drink. Most but I will say, too, I, you know, with those coffee knockoffs, a cup of coffee is a great liquid pairing for a cigar. Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars? Steve Ryder. I mean, come on. <laughs> I you should know, meet that guy sometime. Yeah, you should meet, yeah. Find yourself somewhere. You know, the two stories that I'll tell, and they both happened within a week of each other. Had a guy come into town, Casey Shannon, and we met up at Cigars International here in the colony. And as I drove up, the place is packed. They're doing valet parking, and I'd, I'd never seen that before. And they were doing a Padron night and had a big, you know, display of a bunch of Padron cigars. And Zach joined us. And it was November, it was the first kind of chilly night in Dallas, and the patio heaters weren't working at Cigars International. So Zach, Casey, and I are the only three crazy people sitting out on the patio because the inside was packed, waiting on Jorge Padron to show up. Well, when he got there, he came in through the patio, and we called him over, and fortunately, we're all smoking Padrones that we had just bought inside, and uh, he spent 10 or 15 minutes just hanging out with us and enjoying some good time. That was... That was a neat opportunity. But then about a week later, I was in the DR and was there with Seth Cohen and Dan Lewis. And we did a tour of La Aurora factory and great tour, you know, great fourth generation, oldest continuous serving Dominican cigar manufacturer. And uh, we're about to go through the gift shop. We're about to leave. And we'd met the general manager on the tour. And he comes out. He's friends. The president would like to meet you. 
So we get ushered back into these offices and sit down and uh, Guillermo Leon, fourth generation, uh, his great grandfather started the company. And Guillermo pours us all out of a bottle of um, 110th anniversary rum they had commissioned a few years before, still maybe the best rum I've ever had. Gives us all a cigar from his private collection. And then he, and he says, so what brings you to my country? And Seth said, well, we're a part of a group that has two things in common. We love cigars and we love Jesus. And Guillermo said, ah, this is true of me as well. <laughs> <laughs> so for the next hour and a half, we talked cigars and Jesus. Wow. With Guillermo Leon sits, wow. sitting in his office. It was, it was a sweet deal, definitely. Best place you've ever smoked? Besides my back porch. Besides this wonderful backyard. Uh, you know, probably Shelley's. Enjoy every time I go to Shelley's. You know, I go to DC for work a little bit, and there a few years ago for the prayer breakfast. And Holy Smokes guys were there every night. Tuesday night, there was probably four or five of us. Met Buzz Leonard for the first time. That is a lasting experience for anybody <laughs> who's ever met Buzz. Buzz is one of the guys in the Holy Smokes that matches you in size. He's yes, a, he's a big dude as well. He is. He is. I need to get up to Seattle and go to the treehouse. I've got to figure out how to get up with him and Jim and hang out with those guys. But the second night, there's maybe 15 Holy Smokes guys. The third night, the Thursday night after the prayer breakfast that morning, there's probably 30 or 35 Holy Smokes guys. And Kay Hiramini is speed dating us. Arnie, come here, you got to meet this guy. And, you know, you sit down, and that's where I met Seth Cohen, and that's where I met uh, Rick Eldridge, you know, and, mm -hmm. and talking about movies. And yeah. Kay's moving the room. It was just a phenomenal experience. Best conversation over a cigar? You're the one I'm having. You know, I, I love to tell stories. I, I told you when I was working at World Vision and we were talking about having T-shirts made, if, if your most common saying was on a T-shirt, what would it say? My, and everybody agreed my T-shirt would say, oh, that, let me tell you a story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just so, you know, our local group here, I'll tell one story about our DFW group. We have a, a gathering first Tuesday of the month, every month at John Worley's house. And we were there, it was December of 2018, I think. And it was 29 degrees when we started at seven o'clock. And we stayed out there on his patio till close to midnight. And there was a dude there from California. Don't remember uh, him. I just remember he shared a little bit about his journey and where he was, and we began to pray for him. And I, I bet for 45 minutes we prayed. Mm -hmm. And it was maybe the sweetest prayer time I think I've ever been involved in. It was, it was just really cool. And I, those groups like that are great conversations. You talk everything from the benign things of life, like sports and, mm -hmm. and stuff like that, maybe a little politics every so often when I want to get Zach riled up about something, or theology or family or you know, what does it take to be a good husband or be a good dad? It's just, it's, it's great fellowship. Marvel or DC? DC as a kid, probably Marvel as an adult. Favorite superhero? Spider-Man. Absolutely. <laughs> Hands down. Star Wars or Star Trek? Love them both, but definitely Star Trek. You know, the dog, first dog I convinced my wife to buy, my wife's a city girl from Buenos Aires, Argentina, and never had pets. And so the first dog I convinced her for us to have as a pet was a beagle. And 
the question was, do we name him Jean-Luc or do we name him Trek? And we settled on Trek. So definitely a Star Trek, nice generation guy. Favorite food? I know I just said favorite, but... Favorite food? Like a go-to. I love to grill a good steak. I definitely have adopted some of the good foods from Argentina. So Milanesa, um, of course, they grill great steaks in Argentina, mm-hmm. too. But Milanesa, empanadas, beef or chicken empanadas, really good stuff. But I, I tend to like food in general. There's only three or four I don't like, so food's a good thing. Dogs, cats, neither, or both? Dogs, most definitely. I've had cats at different times in life, but never found them to be worthwhile as pets. Nickname growing up or in college? You know, in, in college, my freshman year in college, I was the party guy, but my sophomore and then on, I was I was the Christian guy. I, mm-hmm. You know, El Paso's a relatively small town, but I usually will refer to myself, I was the Tim Tebow of El Paso, right? So our football team started winning games and I would get interviewed all the time. We had a guy, one of my teammates, he would do this sketch. He was a very funny guy. Do this sketch that he called the sumo. And he would mock people. I mean, he'd mock the coaches. He'd mock the players. And it was these great gatherings when Coop was going to do sumo. So in a whim in college, I'm a relatively hairy person. And so I shaved the hair on my chest into the shape of a cross. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, one of those silly, you know, silly things you do when you're 21 and crazy. And so Coog would, in his sumo of me, he would refer to me as Arnie, Jesus loves fat people too, Atkinson. <laughs> so that's uh, always been my favorite. What's one unusual fact that few people know about you? So my friends all know this, but you're getting to experience this firsthand since we're sitting out here without shoes on. I only have four and a half toes on my right foot lawnmower incident when I was 16 working at a golf course and so I I have the most unique footprint on the planet. I mean I have ugly feet to begin with that just makes it uniquely ugly in its own way. I mean so you lost the toe next to your big toe I mean it could have been even worse you could have lost that big toe which would have ended your football career before you you went to college. I was 16 and uh, working at this little rinky-dink golf course up in the Texas Panhandle and slipped and fell on the front of a tee box and my foot went under the mower and it did. It cut my second toe almost completely off, nicked the top of my third toe, but cut the big toe about a third of the way across. And if it had severed that bone and, you know, then they would have had to try to fix that. And, you know, the reason they ended up just cutting that second one all the way off is the doctor said it'll it'll probably never, unless you you know, go into the detail of reattaching vessels and nerves and that sort of thing. It would probably just get gangrenous and have to cut it off anyway. So we might as well just do it now. But fortunately, the big toe was not, it wasn't cut through the bone. And so they stitched it up. I had 72 stitches and in between those two mm. toes that were cut pretty bad. Mm. You're a reader. I am a reader. Favorite one to three books not titled The Holy Bible. You know, one of those great questions people will ask you, especially when they find out you're a Christian, you know, oh, what's your favorite book? And they're always shocked when I don't say the Bible. The most impactful single book, because really, technically, the Bible's a collection of books, right? So mm-hmm. it's a little off. But the single most impactful book on me 
in terms of just the practical day-to-day was a book called Getting Things Done by David Allen. And, you know, I've never met David Allen, don't know really a whole lot about the guy, other than he created a system of managing your tasks and your schedule and your just the stuff you got going on in your world for people whose jobs were more like mine. You know, I've been in the fundraising world for 25 years, and every day is different. You can't categorize your tasks and prioritize. I've tried every system mm-hmm. prior to that under the sun, but I picked up that book in a in an airport one time when I was traveling, and it just has radically changed the way I organize my life. Hmm. What's the overview? You know, the most impactful thing on the way I still to this day organize my work is it's you organize it by context instead of by project or priority. So you create a context like what can I only do when I'm at my office? What do I have to have an internet connection to do? And so all of the, you know, 30 to 50 open tasks I have at any given time are organized that way. So if I am on an airplane and I don't have Wi-Fi, I don't even open that set of tasks that require a internet connection. And so the mindset of it is David talks a lot about karate and having a mind like water to make sure that your mind is clear of the clutter and that your your subconscious is not trying to remember all the things that you haven't captured somewhere. Mm-hmm. So I capture everything, I write everything down, I'm a big writer. And then once it's in a list, a context list, I forget about it until I'm in that context and then I pull up that list and go, okay, let me just start working through that stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's a great system for me. Mm-hmm. The other book I would say is The Divine Conspiracy. That book, the first time I read it, I, I'm, I'm in the middle of my fifth time of reading it over the last 20 years, but the first time I read it, it took me probably 18 months just to get through the book. Dallas Willard, he's a guy I would have loved to have met. He may end up on my three guys to smoke a cigar with later, but you know, Dallas was a, grew up, uh, was an ordained Southern Baptist who attended a Quaker fellowship in Southern California and was a professor of philosophy at USC that's the kind of guy I want to meet. It's the kind of guy I want to be. And the divine conspiracy unpacks this idea that, you know, the kingdom is for now. It's not about, or at least not only about, are you going to go to heaven when you die? But it's about what's the life Jesus is calling you to live now. And uh, that in this in-between time we live, in between Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection and the future reestablishment of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, we are involved in this divine conspiracy to overcome evil with good and to help humans learn how to really be human again and experience the freedom from sin that Jesus lived and Paul talked about. And I love that book. You could be any animal. What animal would you be? I knew you'd throw one in there that would uh, not be one I'd thought about before. If I could be any animal, what animal would I be? You know, the first thing that comes to mind is a is just a bear, because that's what people compare me to anyway. Big, mm-hmm. loud, hairy guy. So I'd pick a, a good Kodiak, Alaskan Kodiak bear. Ooh, the biggest of them all. The biggest of them all. You like documentaries? 
Some. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, I don't watch a lot of TV. I mean, pretty much the only TV I watch is when my wife or daughter make me watch something with them. But I like a good documentary. Okay. If you could live anywhere, where would you live? Yeah, this question is all about whether or not I'm you know, still married or is it someday when I'm a widow. My wife is a beach person. I'm a mountain person. So if it was just me, I would pick a cabin next to a lake somewhere in the middle of nowhere. No Wi-Fi. Just enjoying the mountains, the trees, the birds, the lake. But I've, the beach has grown on me over the years. It comes home with me after I leave the beach, and stuck in all my nooks and crannies. So that's the part of the beach I don't like, is the part that I feel like I find for the next three weeks. But it's grown on me some. So I could see myself living on a beach somewhere. What's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness? My greatest strength... I think it's my relational ability. I think it's the thing that has impacted my life and my career more than anything else is I think, I hope, I'm good with people. You know, sit down with people and I, I feel like I read people well and I can be a bit of a chameleon in terms of engaging people based on who they are so I adapt my own engagement of them in a way that I, I hope is is beneficial to the relationship. My biggest weakness is that I'm lazy. <laughs> if my brother was here, he would tell the story of, you know, Arnie's version of working out in, in college football was walk into the weight room, talk to a few guys, maybe do a set of bench press reps, talk to a few other guys, walk out the other door and go play golf. And that was, <laughs> that's a relatively <laughs> accurate assessment of my attitude towards the physical workout and in my natural self it bleeds over into everything I naturally I could be a procrastinator I could be the person who doesn't ever want to you know do the hard work side of things who's been the greatest influence in your life my dad um you know in ways that I probably didn't even recognize until I was a you know 40 year old adult my dad is, uh, he is not a lazy person. He's, he's a hard worker. <laughs> but just his, some of his demeanor, some of his relational ability, even though he's much quieter than me, I def the loudness comes from my mom, but the relational side comes from my dad, the good relational mm. side. My mom doesn't know a stranger in the world. She'll talk to anybody, and I definitely have a little bit of that in me. But my dad has that ability to engage somebody very appropriately much like my brother and I don't know anybody who has ever met my dad ever worked with my dad ever known him as a friend who just doesn't have the utmost respect for him he's, he's just mm. engenders a kind of wisdom that's as I've gotten older I've definitely appreciated his impact on my life mm. more than I did when I was 19 for sure hmm Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? My dad. I heard you ask that question yeah. to Yale earlier. and Yeah, I, I told you a little bit. I'd love bragging on him. He started working shift work in a refinery when I was six months old. And over the course of time, actually qualified for a promotion into the front office because he was the only guy out in the refinery doing shift work who knew how to type. type. And he'd taken typing in high school. He'd been in the Army for four years, 
before he and my mom got married and you know just continued to be successful in that career and retired in 1997 from Texaco and natural gas production and I have heard his peers say he was the highest executive in the Texaco corporation that had never been to college he was an area vice president with natural mm -hmm. gas production what do you do for self-care to rest to recharge smoke cigars uh, you know for me cigars are either totally communal like a Holy Smokes Fellowship, or totally contemplative. Mm -hmm. And it's because you can't do it quickly. You have to do it slow. Well, I mean, you can try. And, and as we've said a couple of times over the last few days, I'm a slow smoker. I, I am a slow cigar smoker. And so I, alone time is what recharges me. I am a highly relational introvert. So people drain me, you know, People suck the life out of me. I love it. I love every minute of it, but it's draining. And if I don't build alone time into my daily schedule, I'd run out of energy real fast. And so it's sitting out here, reading a good book, listening to a podcast, listening to the birds. That's my recharge time. As a bird is chirping <laughs> in the background. What's one culture not... American that you find absolutely fascinating? You know, Argentina's got to be on that list, obviously, because of my wife and her family. You know, the Argentine culture, we were talking about this with my wife just a couple of days ago, hanging out with you guys, that, that it's a culture built around relationship, yeah. community, and the idea of you know, the thing that has made the United States great and not great is the rugged individualism that's built into our culture. And it, you know, on that individualistic perspective, the United States is way on the end of the individual and not of the community. Argentina would be more towards that communal side. And, and so experiencing family and fellowship and, you know, eating dinner at nine o'clock at night because it took you three hours to cook because you're communing together and talking the whole time. And you know, that that's been just a fascinating thing to get to know in 30 years of being married. Final three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey? I think the fellowship of hanging around with guys who don't have an agenda other than the encouragement of each other is to me the best part of it. And you, you get around a few who have an agenda. You know, in my line of work as a fundraiser, you find out very quickly when you're hanging around with a fundraiser, is he relating to you because he wants to enhance his job or because he really values you as a person? And you'll find guys, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, I had this one or two experiences over the, the four years I've been around, and it's happened even on the, on the Facebook page, where, you know, hey, I don't know if this is doable, but I want to offer this thing for sale. And when you meet somebody and you, you realize that the relationship is not the focus of what they're trying to get out of it, it just taints it. Most, the vast majority of the mm -hmm. Holy Smokes relationships are not that. They are guys who just, they're interested in you for you. And interested in the fellowship for the sake of the fellowship and that's 
irreplaceable in life. Hmm. If you could have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history, living or deceased, who would they be? Can't name Jesus. I've thought about that question a lot. So the first guy, and I wanted to be unique and not say anybody that everybody else says, right? So the first guy would definitely be Alexandre Dumas, or as the guy says in Shawshank Redemption, Alexandre Dumbass. Yeah. (laughs) His story to me is just one of those great biography stories. So his father was also named Alexandre Dumont, and he was known as the Black Count. So the famous Dumont writer, his grandparents were a French officer and a Haitian slave. And so the first Alexandre Dumont was referred to as the Black Count. He was a peer with Napoleon in the French Revolution and seems like a larger-than-life kind of figure. And his son, who saw both the, um, you know, the great escapades during the French Revolution prior to Napoleon having his father jailed mm-hmm. and eventually killed because he was a rival, in some ways probably a better leader than Napoleon Bonaparte was, so there was betrayal and all those things involved in that, which made their way into the writings. You know, The Count of Monte Cristo is one of my favorite books and stories. And, you know, even though the Jim Caviezel movie version is not exactly accurate to the book, it's in some ways even better. Because, you know, the book ends with The Count of Monte Cristo only getting revenge, whereas I, you know, I love Jim Caviezel's version of Edmond Dantes because he finds grace and mm-hmm. redemption and forgiveness even at the end of the story and so Alexander Dumas he would be one you know who I, I honestly had written down thinking about this is Gandhi mm. I think it would be really cool to have a smoke and a conversation with Gandhi and unpack his statement of I would be a follower of Jesus if it wasn't for all the Christians I know <laughs> Because clearly the teachings of Jesus impacted his life in terms mm-hmm. of a nonviolent resistance to an oppressive regime. I would just love to talk more about that. And I think doing that over a cigar would be great. The one kind of spiritual guy I would throw in is Joseph, Jesus's mm-hmm. earthly dad. Mm-hmm. I just think I would love to hear more about Jesus as a kid. <laughs> what was he like? You know, Max Lucado has that list of questions that he wants to ask people from the Bible. And one of the questions he wants to ask Joseph is, did you ever arm wrestle with Jesus and did he let you win? <laughs> I think that's, that's awesome. But I would love to know, you know, I, one of the question, great questions in life for me is what did Jesus know and when did he know it? You know, Ooh. Did, did, he, did he walk out of the womb, did he crawl out of the womb knowing he was the son of God? Or was that a realization that happened when he was 10 or five or 13 or you know, and I I want to ask Joseph that question. Hmm. So Joseph would be my my third guy there. There's a bunch of others. I mentioned Dallas Willard earlier, but yeah, those would be my three. All right, last question. If we're to meet one year from today, and I got a bottle of your favorite bourbon, and we're cracking it open. What are we celebrating? I'm just gonna say that needs to be a Pappy Van Winkle. Uh, when you do bring that bottle, we'll we'll, we'll do that. Um, <laughs> I think we're celebrating 
the successful launch of kids. We're, we're our last youngest child is going off to college this fall, so we'll be empty nesters. Santa and I will be married 30 years in May. She's my, a special lady. Oh my gosh, absolutely. She's great. She is amazing. I, as they say, I outpunted my coverage when it comes to <laughs> when it comes to my wife. But I think a year from now we'd be celebrating that sense of accomplishment and fear and hopefully off the payrollness of you know having launched three great young adults. My goal as a dad has always been to you know create humans who are mature and you know we sometimes approach our relationship with God in a way that we you know we want him to tell us everything. I you get around people that you know you ask them hey we're going to order some pizza what kind of pizza do you want and they feel like you feel like they got to pray about it. let me see what God wants you know from my pizza and <laughs> I find that honestly to be an immature engagement with God that I mean, that's the way a four-year-old relates to his parent, right? If my four-year-old kid is playing with a ball and he throws it in the street, I am drilling into him, you do not go into the street to get the ball. You come find me, we will go get the ball. And I think there are places in our relationship with God that's exactly the kind of relationship it is. But if my 26-year-old son calls me from Galveston and says, Dad, I was playing with a ball and it went in the street, what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> That's not the kind of relationship I want to have with my 26-year-old son. I want him to be the mature enough adult to say, I can look both ways. I can go get the ball on my own. And I think God does that with us at times, that he's building this sense of maturity. People ask, how do you know what God's will is? And so many times in my career choices or ministry choices, I feel like God's going, what do you think you should do? Like, God, mm -hmm. give me wisdom. Open a door. Give me a sign. And God's like, what do you think you should do? <laughs> no, tell me. You know. Yeah. And, uh, so that, that we'd be celebrating the successful launch of three young adult humans to make a difference in the world. Ernie Atkinson. I can truly tell you, after the th so far three days I've been here hanging with you, you are one of my favorites in Holy Smokes, oh. brother. You're gracious to say that, and it's been a great time. I have loved it, and thanks for letting me get to tell some stories. Thanks for being on the Holy Smokes podcast, brother. My pleasure.